My family and I, when we moved into the house we're in right now, in Meridian, we walked into the backyard and we were blown away with the trees we had in our backyard. It was pretty incredible to see how these trees had matured throughout the years before we had even uh, purchased this home. And we were excited because we knew those would provide things like shade, um, you know, some privacy in our backyard. But we got there in April and we weren't really going to move in until June. So we looked at it. We thought that's great. And then we came back in June and in June we saw the full glory of these trees. Wow. These are going to be great. When it gets up to that 100-degree mark, we're going to have shade and stay cool back there. And it took us a little while, though, to realize that in the back right corner of our yard, there was an apple tree. And it took us a while because there really wasn't any apples being produced by this tree. And when they were, we started to notice they weren't very healthy apples. They weren't very good. The tree was really tall. It wasn't pruned correctly when it was planted and as it started to grow. And so it wasn't a healthy apple tree. So My wife and I, we talked for a little while, and we thought about it, and after figuring out a game plan, I went to the market, and I bought 200 shiny apples, and I brought them home, and I got some zip ties, and I zip tied all those shiny apples to all the branches of those trees, and ever since then, that tree's been healthy. Please turn to James chapter 2, but really, turn to James chapter 2. You're not going to let me leave it there, are you? Because... Common sense says that's not how you make a tree healthy. No, the fruit ultimately is something we use to identify the health of the tree, what's going on inside. And it'd be ridiculous for me to hang apples to an apple tree and expect that to somehow improve the health of the apple tree. But so often in our Christian lives, when we don't see fruit in our lives, we go out and we find some fruit to hang on the branches of our Christian faith rather than looking to the faith itself that saved us, to see if it truly is healthy, if it truly is saving faith. And that's a lot of what James is going to talk about in our passage this morning. He's going to direct us to the fact that we need to inspect the fruit in our lives, not to go out and hang more fruit on our tree of faith, so to speak, but to examine the faith itself and why it's not producing fruit in our lives. We want to make sure we start from that premise to understand it's ridiculous when we think about it from the perspective of making our trees healthy, but it's just as ridiculous when we think about it from the perspective of somehow being right with the Lord or somehow making ourselves healthy as a Christian. It's important because of what we're going to talk about this morning for us to start with what the gospel is, because we're going to be talking a lot about fruit, a lot about works, and this can be sometimes a confusing topic, but we want to make it clear because scripture is very clear on how we are to view and understand works. Ephesians 2, 8, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is not something you can earn. You can't earn favor with the Lord no matter how hard you work. Back in Genesis 3 at the fall, Adam and Eve, they ate from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil when they were told not to. And sin came into the world. Death came into the world. We were separated from God spiritually. We suffered a spiritual death. But ultimately, physical death came into the world as well. And that's why you and I, all of us will die because of sin that entered the world. But God, God had a plan, right? He sent his only son to live the perfect life. He was fully God and fully man. He lived a perfect life, the life we could never live. So that he could be a perfect sacrifice. He had to be perfect. 
He was the perfect lamb. And then he was crucified for our sin. He paid for our sin on the cross. And by his blood, we are saved. He is an atonement for our sin. And we need to put our trust in him. The Bible says we need to respond to that truth by repentance and faith. Repentance is really turning our desires. It's really a mental assent. It's really like a mental decision. Our desires turn from what we desired in our former life, our sins, and we turn and we desire God. We don't want to be a part of our sin anymore. We want to be a part of what God wants in our lives. And we put our trust in Jesus Christ. That means we throw him the keys. He calls the shots. He's in charge now. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ by grace. Grace is a gift. It's nothing we earn. There's nothing we can bring to the table. God deposits righteousness into our account on behalf of Jesus Christ. We cannot be righteous before a holy God without Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. But we want to look now at what the gospel ultimately produces when we respond to it. That's what James is talking about. We're in chapter 2 here, starting in verse 14. I'll read the whole passage, and then we'll start going through it verse by verse. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This first verse, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And I want to really start by making sure we understand today, James is not presenting the ultimate heavyweight battle between Works and faith. There's not a heavyweight battle here between Paul and James. No, what he's presenting is this argument of faith that produces works versus faith that does not produce works. This is not a conversation about works at all, really. It's about faith. It's about faith that produces works and a faith that doesn't produce works. Point number one, we want to understand the relationship between faith and works. Because if we understand the relationship between these two, it'll start to really connect the dots for us according to the gospel we just reviewed. Because he starts with my brothers, he's probably speaking to this church of Jewish Christians that we've been talking about since we started this series. These people believed in the existence of God. They believed in the authority of Scripture. They believed that Christ was the Messiah. They they were raised that way. They understood these things. Their understanding of God isn't in question, though. These people have a claim to faith, but perhaps some of them don't have evidence in their lives to support this claim. You know, James was just talking about partiality or favoritism. That's what we talked about last time. Uh, Perhaps he's not seeing them live that out. 
And so now he's talking to them about having a faith that ultimately produce right, produces righteous works. So far in James, he's listed off some of these fruits, right? He's listed off endurance, perseverance under trial, purity, obedience to scripture, compassion for the needy, and impartiality. Later, he'll get to control of the tongue, humility, truthfulness, and patience. He's going to walk through all of this, and he wants his church, and we want this church to understand what it means to live out the Christian life, a life redeemed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And perhaps it would be good for us to define the word works for this morning so that we have something to kind of grab onto. Maybe you can put it down like this, actions done in the service or obedience to God. Actions done in the service or obedience to God. And that's important, right? Because that's very, that can be very simple sometimes. We're not necessarily talking about going out, giving up everything and going into the mission field so you can suffer for the lost in some far off country. Although if you're called to that, please do it. We're not necessarily talking about going and emptying your bank account today and giving it all to the needy. Although if you're called to that, please do it. What we're talking about most of the time is waking up and fulfilling out of obedience, small acts of service and obedience to God. He asks us to basically forego our own pleasures, our own preferences, day in and day out, little by little, and as we grow on that, he asks for more. The Bible often refers to these works as fruit. A couple passages here, John 15, 5 through 8, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, He is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Matthew 13, 23 says, As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. Out of the four soils, this is the person who responds to the gospel. Here's what it says. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, in another 30. Everyone bears fruit who is in Christ. That's what we see here. What about Paul, though? Doesn't he disagree with James? And we've probably heard that before. If you've studied much of James, this idea of faith without works is dead, Paul's names probably come up. No, They're not contradicting each other, and they don't disagree with each other. Paul opposes works righteousness, as he should, earning favor with God based on our own works. James opposes righteousness that doesn't produce works. I think you can think about it like this. Imagine Paul and James standing back to back, locked in arms, fighting different enemies of the gospel. That's Paul and James, and that's the scripture that we're going to unpack today. I mean, Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. But here's here's verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul understands there's no such thing as a fruitless Christian, just as James does. Let's read our passage again, starting in verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So the idea that this is a brother or sister is probably someone in the church, someone in James' church, who has a need. And this go in peace is the equivalent of saying, good luck to you. There's no compassion here for the person who's in need. Be warmed and filled is kind of this sarcastic comment. Warm and feed yourself. 
So it would be like if someone was in this church in need and you knew their need and you could meet it and you said, hey, man, good luck figuring that out. You know, I hope you figure it out on your own. You know, that's what James is talking about, a lack of compassion. And he wraps up this hypothetical story by saying, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith without works is dead. And I really want to give you an equation here. I want us to help frame up this idea of what works does in relationship to a saving faith, the gospel. Where does works fit? And I think this equation really helps. If you've gone through the partners program in our church, you will have seen this equation before. I put a a resource on the back of your sheet called Exploring the Gospel. It really explains this well. But the first equation we'll put up is the gospel plus the response equals being a Christian. The gospel plus the response equals being a Christian. And I told you what the gospel is. We're all on the same page there. The response is repentance and faith, and that equals being a Christian. That's not a bad equation. Right? All of us would look at that and go, yeah, that's right. That's the gospel. But I want to give you one little addition to the right side of that equation that will help us frame up our mindset as we continue to dive into James. The gospel plus the response equals being a Christian plus good works. This really helps us to start to think about the fact that when we repent and we put our faith in Christ, that faith that we put in Christ is ultimately put to the test when we look at the right side of this equation. Many times, in many ways, false teachers have put that good works on the left side of the equation, which isn't the gospel. That's not the gospel. That's works righteousness that we were talking about earlier. And sometimes in a culture where we've seen people take such advantage of churches, and people who want to be Christians, by teaching a false gospel that does put works on the left side, we swing the pendulum so far that we're afraid to have a conversation about works. There's been many pastors, many a pastor that have been afraid to go into James because they have a background in maybe the Catholic church or another church where there's very much a works righteousness mentality. And so we get afraid to talk about works, but works have their place because James was ultimately breathed through by God to pen these words. These are God's words, and we need to talk about them. The gospel plus the response equals being a Christian plus good works. That'll come into play a little bit more, but let's read on in our passage from James today, starting in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So there's this idea of we can have knowledge about God, but even the demons have that knowledge. It's kind of like if I was researching like crazy Bitcoin, right? Many of you know Bitcoin is worth a lot right now, so I got all into it. I started researching blockchain chain technology, and I just thought this was the best investment possible. I even went on Facebook, was like posting articles, trying to get people to invest in it. This is the best thing ever. And then you found out that I didn't invest in it. Would you say that I really, truly trust in Bitcoin? No, I'd have to put my money, quite literally, where my mouth is. Point number two, go beyond knowing the facts to trusting completely. Go beyond knowing facts to trusting completely. In verse 19, it says, you believe that God is one. This is the heart of what James is getting at in this middle passage. You believe that God is one. You understand that God is one. These Jewish Christians, they would have been raised by birth to believe in the one true God. That would have been an easy thing for them to shake their head yes to and believe and go along with. Continuing in verse 19, however, it says, even the demons believe. And and I truly believe that James may have been 
tipping his hat back to Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, which says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You understand that? Great. I love that you understand that, James says, but here's verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your might. See, the demons understand the truth of Deuteronomy 4, but their type of belief will never produce the response of verse 5. That's the difference. And here's a list of what the demons actually know. Demons understand that Scripture is God's word, that Jesus Christ is God's son, that salvation is by grace through faith. Jesus died, was buried, and raised to atone for the sins of the world. Jesus ascended to heaven and is now seated at his Father's right hand. There is a literal heaven and a literal hell, and perhaps that's why they shudder, because they know they're going there. Now, in many, many churches throughout the world, if someone came up to us and said, I believe all these things about God, they'd be signed up and in the baptistry the next week. But knowing these facts does not make a Christian. God calls us to a response. Not works to earn salvation, but a response to the work that he did. And perhaps this list is eye-opening because it really brings to home the fact that even the demons believe some of the most core truths about Christianity in the Bible. And Maybe you've been in a family or a church that's taught that trusting in Jesus is merely intellectual. And we're learning here in James that's just not the case. James is reminding his audience that trust in Jesus goes far beyond facts and into faith. I want to ask you, what if I knew someone who was a pilot? As a matter of fact, just for the sake of discussion, let's say Pastor Ben was a pilot. He was a great pilot. He's been studying and taking flight lessons all of his life. He's got all his flight hours in, and he's ready to take people up and fly anywhere he wants to. And first off, you have to know that I know nothing about being a pilot. Right? I know nothing. I've, I could never get into a plane and do anything with it. But here's Pastor Ben. He's an amazing pilot. Now, I can tell everyone I know what a great pilot Pastor Ben is. Right? I could be the biggest fan and direct everyone to him, I could say, you got to go up and see what the Treasure Valley looks like from the plane of Pastor Ben. You've got to fly around with him. It's wonderful. But if I truly believed, believed in the way that Scripture tells us to believe in Pastor Ben as a pilot, I would get into the plane with him and take off. That's the kind of belief that Scripture talks about. That's the kind of faith when we say, repent and believe. Repentance and faith. It's getting into the plane with Jesus. You know, he's not your co-pilot. You're in the back of the plane doing whatever he wants to do, trusting him fully. And when you hit turbulence, if I was in a plane with Pastor Ben and we hit turbulence or a big storm came on, I would have nothing to add. No advice, even if I wanted to give him advice, would help because he knows how to fly the plane. This is what he does. I wouldn't tell Pastor Ben how to fly, and I'm eternally less qualified to tell Jesus how to lead. Far too often, we think we've put our faith in Jesus Christ, but really what we've done is agree with who Jesus is, but we're still leading our own life, and that's not faith. So what does this practically look like as a human in relationship to God? Well, the Bible uses the words repentance and faith, and now we understand what that word faith means. It's getting into the plane. James is saying that true faith in Jesus Christ produces results or works. You know, unfortunately, we've gotten to a place 
in our cultural Christianity where not denying God is synonymous with trusting him. As long as you don't deny God, you trust him. And that's simply not what scripture says. You know, I say God doesn't require anything, but it will cost you everything. That's biblical Christianity. We read on again in verse 20. It says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, what faith apart from works? That faith apart from works is useless. Let's turn to Matthew 7. Matthew 7, starting in verse 15, because sometimes James is called a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And here we have Jesus talking about fruit. Talk about identifying false prophets. Sometimes I think James is referring back to the Sermon on the Mount when he says things like this. Do you really want to be shown, you foolish person? The faith apart from works is useless. How far do you want to take this? How far do you want to battle me on this point? Because ultimately death is standing before you at some point and eternity is at hand. And if you're wrong, there's going to be major consequences. Starting in verse 15, says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Why? Because they look like sheep. You won't know that they're wolves by looking at them anymore. You know that the tree in my backyard was healthy if it did or didn't have fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. You can believe that fruit isn't part of the equation, but someday we'll all find out. That's really what James is saying. Do you want to be shown? And I know that can be heavy. I know this can be a heavy concept, but let's wrap up with some encouragement. Because James doesn't stop there. Strategically, he gives his church some examples of faith in action, a live faith. Talks about Abraham and Rahab. Gives them examples of people who aren't perfect, yet trusted fully in God. And they were vindicated by the actions that they took because of that trust in God. Starting in verse 21 in our passage, it says this, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, That faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So let's be encouraged by these great people of faith as we finish up today. Point number three, be encouraged by those with a saving faith. You know, James has previously convinced us that faith without works is dead, but now he shifts to showing us that faith with works is alive. This last passage uses the word justified, a very specific way, and it's important for us to unpack. So we have several slides here where we're going to unpack this word justified because right here is the crux of why people have a problem with James and Paul being on the same page but they're not on the same page. I hope we walk away with that understanding this morning. The Greek word for justified has two general meanings. The first has to do with declaring a person as righteous. Justification as salvation. Made righteous. This is what Paul typically is using throughout Scripture. We look at passages like Romans 3.24, Galatians 2.16, Titus 3.7. Justification as salvation. 
The second meaning of this word pertains to proof of righteousness or justification as vindication. Vindication, vindication, proof. Proving something. Romans 3.4, 1 Timothy 3.16, and Luke 7.35 are some examples of this justification as vindication. It's the second meaning that James uses in the verse, was not Abraham our father justified by works? So let's walk through this a little bit using Genesis 15, which is what James is referring to, and Genesis 22, which is ultimately what James is referring to when he talks about being justified or vindicated. So verse 23 here, and the scripture was fulfilled, justification as vindication, that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, justification as salvation. So Genesis 15, 4 through 6 says this, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. So God is speaking to Abraham. He's about to talk to him about how he's going to provide an heir to create the nation of Israel. It's a promise that Abraham needs to believe. And he does. This man shall not be your heir. He's talking about Ishmael. Very, your very own son shall be your heir, Isaac. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness justification as salvation. He trusted the Lord. He got into the plane at this point. He said, God, I'm going to follow your ways. I'm going to believe your promises, and I'm going to do everything you ask me to do. But did he? Well, we, we don't know. We, we believe Scripture because we're reading it here, but in that moment, that was talk. Talk is cheap. Did Abraham really believe the Lord? Well, we find out he did because we bump over to Genesis 22, 9 through 12. Now the time comes for the test. When they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Mind, mind you too, this is his only son. This is the son that God promised as an heir to, to make his descendants number more than the stars he looked up at in Genesis 15. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Justification is vindication. He was vindicated. His faith was real. The proof is there. Seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So we look at this and we say, Genesis 15 God came to him and promised him something. Abraham didn't do anything to deserve what God gave him, the righteousness that was imputed to him for his belief. But the proof of that was seen in Genesis 22. And we go to our passage, and this will help kind of tie it all together. James 2, 21 through 23, we'll put it on the screen here. Was not Abraham our father justified by works, vindicated by his works, proven by his works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith... His saving faith was active along with his works. The proof of his faith and faith, saving faith, was completed by his works of vindication. And the scripture was fulfilled. That says Abraham believed God. He's quoting Genesis 15 now. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. We see the whole story come together here. And we see James and what he's talking about. 
He's not contradicting Paul ultimately, which we're going to see here in Romans 4, 2 through 5. I wanted to go here because you might go home later and go, ah, Romans 4, 2 through 5 says the opposite. No, let's look at it right now because Scripture we know does not contradict itself. And if it does, what are we doing here? Paul says in Romans 4, 2 through 5, for if Abraham was justified by works, if he was saved by works, Paul's asking this rhetorical question almost, if he was saved by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Yeah, he's, if this guy's good at doing a lot of righteous deeds, putting a lot of shiny apples on a lot of dead trees, great. He's got something to boast about, but not before the Lord. That does nothing. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, it's quoting Genesis 15, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as, as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Paul's coming at this again from the other angle. Remember? Locked arms back to back. Paul's coming to this as an argument for salvation by grace alone. And James is coming at it by saying, hey, we are vindicated in that faith. We are proving that faith through the works we see in our life. They all work together. Abraham ultimately trusted God. And that's the most important part. Remember, we're not battling against Abraham's works and Abraham's faith. No, we're battling against a faith that, that uh, produces works and a faith that doesn't produce works. And we see in Abraham a faith that produces works, just like we'll see in Rahab. And if you look back further in Genesis 22.5, if you were to read this whole passage, Abraham knew that God was ultimately going to provide. He trusted him long before he took Isaac up and raised the knife says this, stay here with the donkey, saying this to these other guys that came with him. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. He knew him and Isaac were returning. He had faith that God would provide somehow. And Abraham knew that God wouldn't violate his own standards concerning human sacrifice. He put all of Scripture together as in totality and said, I know what's going on here. I'm being tested. I need to obey God because he made a promise to me and I believe him. And that's what Abraham ultimately was doing. He was living out his faith, his trust in God. Abraham believed that God would not lie, and he would ultimately fulfill his promise regarding Isaac and the nation of people, of Israel. Hebrews 11.19 even says this, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. And at this point, no one had been raised from the dead. So he even thinks, man, if I plunge this knife into Isaac and I slaughter him, he'll raise him from the dead because one way or another, he's making a nation out of this kid. That's faith. And in conclusion, everyone looking at Abraham's life would have seen his faith, justification, his righteousness, his salvation, as alive because of his work of obedience, the vindication. Now we know that Abraham wasn't perfect. I think that's an important thing to remember at this point. You know, when Sarah didn't deliver on the promise of providing an heir, he took matters into his own hands. He even committed adultery ultimately with her maid, Hagar, and had Ishmael. And even to this day, we see the consequences of that. The nation that came from Ishmael is still battling with the nation that came from Isaac because of this disobedience. Then there were those times when he lied about Sarah being his sister. In Genesis 12 and 20. He wasn't perfect, but the overall pattern of Abraham's life was that of good fruit and repentance. 
The direction of Abraham's life was obedience because none of us live in perfection, and that's an important reminder for us. So we're not talking about shining apples and putting them on our tree. No, we're talking about having a faith in Jesus Christ, and when we make mistakes, when we sin, because we aren't sinless, but as the saying goes, we should sin less as we grow to be more like Christ. We need to make sure that we are coming before a holy God and repenting, but ultimately seeing progress in our lives as God provides that through sanctification. And the last part of the verse, in verse 23, it says, and he was called a friend of God. That sounds really familiar. Because in John 15, 14, in the New Testament, we see this. You are, a, you are my friends, Jesus is saying this, if you do what I command you. God is interested in obedience. Obedience is clearly the fruit of a heart that is in allegiance to a holy God and our king. Let's continue reading our passage again, picking it up at verse 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith, faith apart from works is dead. And Rahab here, she was a woman, a Gentile, and a prostitute. She was the opposite of Abraham in many ways, which is also helpful to us because not many of us are living a life like Abraham right now. Most of us live more common lives, living out small acts of obedience and service to the Lord each and every day. He was a moral man. She was an immoral woman. He was a noble Chaldean. She was a Canaanite. He was a great leader, and she was a common citizen. But they're both listed in the great hall of faith in Hebrews 11. They both had great faith that was seen by their acts of obedience and ultimately sacrificing much to be obedient to the Lord. And ultimately, Rahab, she was in the lineage of Jesus Christ. She was the great-grandmother of David. God uses who he wants to use. We just finished reading in uh, Exodus about Moses. God didn't choose Moses because Moses was great. He chose Moses because God is great. He could be most glorified by using Moses, and that's who you and I are. In Joshua 2, 9 through 12, we read the story of, of Rahab. Ultimately, she helped these men who were scoping out Canaan, right? They were there in order to do an errand for God, to go and scope things out, but they got into a place where if they weren't helped out, they would have been killed. And, and she put everything on the line. She put her life on the line and her family's life on the line to help these men. And we're going to see why ultimately she did that. And she said to the man, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord our God he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign. And I think it's interesting to point out that these people, they knew that God parted the Red Sea. They knew that God cleared the path with the Amorites. But ultimately, that knowledge had to turn into action, had to turn into faith, had to turn into kneeling before this holy God and ultimately giving up their whole lives, which Rahab does here, for the Lord. Her and her family, they would have been executed for treason if they were found out for what she did. But she trusted the Lord. 
you know, both Abraham and Rahab, they put everything on the line that was important to them for the sake of obeying God and trusting him. Because talk is ultimately cheap. We even say that in our own culture. People can say things all day long, but what we look for is the fruit of what they're saying confirmed in their actions. And that's what we see in Abraham and Rahab. If you're committed to the Lord, no matter the cost, which I think we would all say, I'm committed to you, Lord, no matter the cost, then we must pay the ultimate cost as evidence of that truth. John 12, 25 says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Abraham and Rahab understood this long before God breathed those words through John. And I hope these examples in Abraham and Rahab encourage us in a few ways. First, a real faith in God produces real fruit. We see that in their lives. But ultimately, it's not about perfection. No, it's about direction. It's about them ultimately becoming more of the people that God wants them to become. For you and me, it's becoming more Christ-like. Good works are actions done in the service or obedience to God. These good works, like I said, they're not always these huge things, but we need to see progress in our lives. We need to see a desire to do what God says in Scripture. Why is it so important to read the Bible all the time, every day, to go through it in a year? It's because we get to know who God is, and we get to understand what he expects of us, and then we get to obey it. It's very simple. For some of you, those stories are encouraging, and for some of you, they're super convicting. Because ultimately, the Bible tells us to examine ourselves. And maybe this is a time of examination for you. 2 Corinthians 13.5, and Paul wrote this, says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in faith, in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? The only way to test our faith is by our fruit. The only way for me to test the health of the tree in my yard is by the fruit. That's what God has given us. And it's actually one of those tests that will always provide a net positive result. That's the good news. If you come before the Lord this morning with a humble heart, the test that Paul's talking about here is always going to produce a positive net result. Because if you're tested and you find that you've never truly put your trust in Christ, then you can today. That's great news. If you have a humble heart before the Lord right now, you could repent and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You can get into the plane. Maybe you've been flying the plane. Maybe you've had the keys in your pocket. You're not quite willing to give up everything for Jesus Christ. But today's the day to throw him the keys and say, you're calling the shots. I'm going with you. Whatever you say, Lord. Today's the day of salvation, the Bible says. Don't wait till tomorrow. We're not promised tomorrow. So if that's you, even if you think you've been a Christian your whole life, and today is very convicting because you realize, I have never actually seen any fruit in my life. That's something to pray about. If you're tested and you find that indeed you are a child of God, then perhaps you'll be fueled all the more to sacrifice everything daily for Jesus Christ. And if you're someone who struggles with assurance... Passages like this and mornings like this can stoke the fire of doubt, and I understand that, and I don't want that for you. As pastors of the church, the last thing we'd want for you to do is struggle with assurance if you have put your trust in Christ. We want everyone in this church to be saved by the blood of Christ, but secondly, we want everyone in this church to know that they're saved by the blood of Christ and have confidence in that. 
because the Bible says that we can have assurance. So everyone in this room, I would love if we could all walk out, or anyone watching online, or in the overflow, anyone hearing my voice 10 years from now on the internet, don't leave where you're at right now without first being sure that you're saved and then having assurance of that salvation. And if you struggle with assurance, I've put something on the back of the worksheet, a book called Saved Without a Doubt. It's a wonderful book that will walk you through biblically how you can have assurance of your salvation. Because that's not what we're trying to do today. We're not trying to make you doubt your salvation if you put your trust in Christ. We're trying to understand what James is saying in the Bible. And if you ultimately have struggle with a struggle with assurance, please come and see me or one of the pastors at the church. And some of you, you're really high performers because and you're saying right now, well, how much is enough? How much fruit should I be putting on this tree? Well, that's not the question we should be asking. It's not about quantity, but it's about identity. It's about identity. Apple trees produce apples, and Christians produce biblical fruit. And I want to read slowly again through the list of fruit that James has already listed off in James. And I want to read slowly through the fruit of the Spirit. And I want to read slowly through the fruit of the Spirit because many of us have memorized it, and we just rattle through it like it's a bunch of words. But we need to realize, no, this is the fruit of a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And as I read through this list slowly, I want you to think about your life. And think of anything that comes to mind that God might be convicting you of right now where you need to grow. Even if you've put your trust in Christ, there may be areas that God is calling you to give up so you can serve him all the more. Endurance, perseverance under trial. That one, you can just think back to how have you been handling this last year? Maybe not based on the virus itself, but how the world handled the virus, how everything got inconvenient for us. How did you handle that? What did your faith look like during that season? Did you grow or did you wither? It's a great question to ask ourselves before the Lord. Purity, obedience to scripture, compassion for the needy, impartiality, control of the tongue, humility, truthfulness. Here comes the fruit of the Spirit. I'm going to go slow. Love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, especially the men in the room. Are you gentle in your home, raising your children with your wife? Are you growing in that as a believer in Christ? Self-control. Those are just to name a few. But I want us to remember this isn't a conversation, again, about faith versus works. No, this is a conversation about a faith that produces works and a faith that does not produce works. And we have talked a lot about good works and fruit today. But James, myself, and the Lord, we don't want you to be fixated on the fruit, to be hyper-analyzing every aspect of your fruit in your life. We want the fruit or lack of to direct you back to your faith. That's the point. We should be directed back to our faith in Christ and who he is. And even if we're struggling, we think that we have put our trust in Christ and we're struggling with seeing fruit in our lives Start praying about it. God will reveal where you're at. He will reveal what you need to do next in obedience to him. He will give you peace. Just like the unhealthy apple tree in my backyard, it would do no good to go down to the market and buy 200 apples and start attaching them to the branches, right? This would not make it a healthy tree any more than trying harder or doing better will help you be a healthy Christian. It's not how it works. 
You got to get in the plane, give full control to Jesus Christ, surrender all, and the fruit will follow. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you help us through your word to understand it and then to apply it to our lives. Help us to be changed by this this morning. If there's anyone who hasn't put their trust in Christ this morning who's hearing my voice, Lord, I pray that they would repent and get in the plane, put their full faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Father, that's what you call us to. It's just a response to the amazing work the greatest work that we could ever experience in our lives, our sins being forgiven. Don't let us become familiar with that, Father, I pray. Help us to have a sensitive view of sin, a high view of you, and an understanding of what sin does before a holy God. We are committing holy treason before you when we sin and we need Jesus Christ. That nothing we can do, no matter how hard we try, can ever make us right before you, Father. But what a good test that we have in our lives to ask ourselves from time to time, am I being changed by the word of God? Am I a new creation? Because you're clear, Lord, in your word that we become a new creation when we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are no longer in the habit of sinning against you. We sin, yes, but we do it less and we are quick to repent. We are quick to obey you, Lord. I pray that you would help us to be a church that obeys your word at all costs, Lord. No matter what the cost of Christianity looks like, that we would always obey you. First and foremost, knowing that this is just a wisp of air and we will be standing before you someday, living in eternity for the rest of our existence. Lord, help us to be bold in sharing this news, this great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that the way is narrow. Lord, we know the harvest is ripe. So many people are even moving to this valley thinking that the treasure valley will solve all their problems, that it'll somehow make their life good, that they don't need to live in some sort of hostile, political, other state or other area where they can't do what they want to, and they they think they're moving here to change their lives, to be saved ultimately, Lord, but we know that will fail them because the only thing that saves is Jesus Christ. And so let us have conversations with people in our lives about what the gospel truly is and about how they can ultimately fill that void that they know is there because they're created in your image. That void that they know they're separated from you and they want a way back to their creator. Lord, we crave your authority. Help us to not take any authority for ourselves. Help us to give it all up, to get into the plane and to let you fly. Father, I praise you for this morning. I pray that these truths would get into our hearts and minds and change us today, tomorrow, and forever. Help us to meditate on your word, to pray about it, Lord. I pray that there be no confusion as anyone walks away this morning, Father. I pray that your word would be clear. And I pray ultimately that we would be a people who love you well and love each other well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.